You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. by our friends at California Sunday Magazine. You'll notice we have some issues up here. Yes, worthy of applause. Um, celebrating this wonderful new book by Mark Eriks. Uh, he's going to be in conversation with Kit Ratchless, discussing the subject of the dreamt land, chasing water and dust across California. Mr. Eriks is an author and journalist whose writings on California and the West have received numerous awards for literary nonfiction. Uh, he's a former staffer at the Los Angeles Times. His work has appeared in the New York Times as well as the California Sunday Magazine. So his books include the bestseller The King of California, which won the California Book Award, and the William Soroyan Prize from Stanford University. He was named a, that book was named a top book of 2004 by the Los Angeles Times and also by the San Francisco Chronicle. He's also the author of In My Father's Name and uh, West of the West, Dreamers, Believers, Builders, and Killers in the Golden State. Uh, he is joined tonight, as I mentioned, by Kit Rapschlis. He is a senior editor at California Sunday Magazine. Previously, he was the editor-in-chief of the American Prospect, Los Angeles Magazine, and the LA Weekly, as well as projects editor at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, so, as I said, tonight's sponsor is California Sunday Magazine. It publishes important feature articles, as well as really stunning photography uh, focused across California, the West, Asia, and America. Uh, the magazine appears online as well as in print. Uh, it's also delivered to select Sunday editions of the Los Angeles Times, as well as the San Francisco Chronicle. And you can also get it by subscription. Uh, so uh, as I said, free issues up here. The way we're going to proceed is there'll be a talk, open up with a Q&A. They will be assigning at the end after you've signed the books. Please do pay for them downstairs because we do want to <laughs> keep doing events here. So, gentlemen, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, and welcome, everybody. It's great to see you all. Um, so, Mark, what I would like to do is sort of begin with a kind of overall view of this book because this book does at least five things. Um, it's a new question, man. It's a new question. Um, it is a for, it's a forgotten or a history of forgotten California or overlooked California. It's an examination of power, particularly of the agricultural barons. It's an investigation in the role, the kind of key role that waters played in the shaping of the state. But it's also an elegy for a land that has been more radically altered than perhaps any other place on earth. And it's a warning that the way we have treated that land and that water and the workers on that land is unsustainable. That's a huge undertaking, but it's also something else, which is where I'd like to begin. It's a deeply personal book. And so can you tell us about your deep connections to the Central Valley and your need to tell the story? Yeah, well, part of that was a strategy, because when you write about water, the potential to put people to sleep is quite high. And I didn't want anybody dying in the middle of this book, although uh, there's a few folks apparently who have read it and put their reviews in on Goodreads who did. Um, so the family story is important. I mean, I wasn't some journalist who parachuted into California and 
in the middle of a drought and try to tell a story. You know, my grandfather came here in 1920. He was a fruit tramp up and down the valley. And, um, and back then it was possible to, after three, four years of labor, to buy a piece of land. And he bought a piece of land, 30, 40 acres west of Fresno. That's where my father was born, in a vineyard. Uh, they were raisin farmers. So uh, it was hard to tell the story without, you know, weaving in the, 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 the family story. It's very personal. And, um, you know, being here is kind of weird. It's, this is the first time I've ever done a, uh, a talk here. There's Saroyan Street right here. My grandfather and William Saroyan were good friends. Uh, William Soroy didn't drive cars. He would call me up sometimes and say, come pick me up. i got to go somewhere. And I'd pick him up. And he lived in these two side-by-side -side little um, uh, track houses in West Fresno. And the lawn was about this tall. <laughs> and there was dandelion that he harvested for his salad and mint that he put in his tea. And every time I walked in there, the tea kettle was whistling. You know, he was just drinking... And I would look, and he would have all these uh, shards of glass and twine and rocks that he collected on these bike rides. And I said, uh, you know, why are you collecting these rocks? He said, well, look at these rocks. They, look how beautiful they are. They remind me that art should be simple. And, um, you yeah, know, I was a kid. I was 12, 13. What the hell did I know about art or rocks or anything else? Um, I remember he had a tape recorder. This is a total going off. That's right. He had a tape recorder by the window, and I said, well, "What are you taping?" And he, he said, "I'm taping the sounds of night." So he re did a little rewind on the tape, and he started playing it, and it was like complete silence. And then all of a sudden, bzzz, bzzz, you know, the sound of a fly or something like that. So this was my introduction to kind of Fresno and writers and was it possible to, to live in a place and write about it? Yes, but at a price, you know. Um, when you write about your place, you end up, you know, hanging out some of the dirty laundry. And so it's a personal book and it's a book that probably pisses off a lot of people in the middle of the state because I, I tell the stories of the place. It, well, it strikes me as being personal in another way, which is that the history of Central Valley has been a history that has been usually overlooked by those who've written the history of California. Um, and that there's an extraordinary tendency for those of us who live there, but especially for those of us who don't live here, to sort of see California through the lens of Los Angeles or the lens of San Francisco, or if you're looking historically, through the 49ers, but that the Central Valley, which is a huge economic engine, among many other things, has been the, his, the place that he has been historically ignored, and that you felt this, and you feel it in almost every page of this book, this huge obligation to not only get that history down, but get it right, and getting it right meant, among other things, pissing some people off, but, but there was this absolute need tell this history um, that was was personal for you? Yeah, I mean, the book goes from Mount Shasta to Imperial. It's the whole state, the story. I do 
my version, probably not as good as Mark Reisner, but I tried to do the Owens Valley caper. Um, um, but yes, I don't apologize for most of the storytelling taking place in the middle of the state because that's where most of the water goes. You know, agriculture takes 80% of the captured water of California. Um, and it is overlooked. The, you know, the valley, uh, I, I think I coined this long ago, but maybe not, maybe I stole it. But, you know, when you cross that mountain from L.A. to the valley, that, that grapevine, we call it, I could never figure that out. I thought maybe that was because it was called the grapevine because it was so twisted or maybe because you were coming to a land of grapes. I could never figure it out. But it really is our Mason-Dixon line. That's where the sprawl of L.A. gives way to the sprawl of agriculture, although that's changing too now. It's the sprawl of L.A. giving way to the subdivision sprawl of the valley too. Um, it's kind of geographically exiled from the rest of the state, but it's also psychically exiled. I mean, there were things that went on in the valley, and I discovered that this in the, my first book uh, when I was looking at my father's murder that was never solved, at least never solved for 30-some years. Um, there's just this, these things that take place there that wouldn't take place anywhere else in California. There's this arrested sense of um, propriety, you know what I mean? Um, what's proper, what can be allowed, and, and law enforcement is in on it, and it's just a, it's a really strange place. And I've tried to puzzle it out. I guess the first book started in Fresno. Then I w ventured out a little farther to the Tulare Lake Basin. And then I did West of West, which was all about California and this one. Um, so it's me trying to figure out this place. It's a weird, it's a weird place. So let's talk about water, which is every major river connected to the Central Valley has been transformed, changed, distorted, um, and has been fought over in big ways, small ways, government versus agricultural barons, agricultural barons versus agricultural barons, agriculture versus city. Um, take one of them and tell the story, whether it's the King River or Sacramento, because that, that becomes an embodiment of, of much of what you're talking about in the book. So um, the tradition, the habit of stealing rivers really started with L.A. and Owens. And that became the example that ended up uh, creating the Central Valley Project. The Central Valley Project basically took the, the excess flows of the Sacramento River. And Sacramento agreed to this back then because they were having floods. And it took those waters and it shipped them south to the middle of the state. Uh, later on, the State Water Project ended up taking more of the, the, the flows of Mount Shasta and the Delta and shipping them along the west side of the valley all the way down to Los Angeles and San Diego. But to me, that, and, and what the valley does is, at first the farmers take their own rivers and they end up growing agriculture in those rich alluvial plains, which seems fine, but they ended up taking 90 to 95% of the flow. Then at some point, agriculture wanted to grow bigger. And that kind of came, you know, came at the same time that the turbine pump was invented in 1920. And so all of a sudden, 
the farmer could go into the earth to draw his water in addition to the river water. So you see the footprint of agriculture then go from primo land to more marginal land. And then today, we see with drip irrigation, the ability to take farmland uphill, to grow nuts on land that not even a cow belongs on. It's that poor. So we see this footprint keep going out. The extraction model keep happening. It all begins in the gold rush. Um, to me, the most, to answer your question, the, 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 the example of the taking of the river that, that echoes the most for me is the taking of the San Joaquin River. This is the river that runs uh, through Fresno. Okay. And um, when my grandfather arrived from, from, from Constantinople in 1920, he said the river was real. There was salmon um, that he could hear thrashing at, at, at night in that river. And at the time he came in 1920, they were out near the river, they were taking the hard pan and blowing it open with dynamite and planting fig trees. And that became Fig Garden. Um, the San Joaquin River is one of the saddest rivers in America. It has been dammed seven times. It's been wholly killed. There are stretches of it that are run dry all the time. And what they did is that they took that water. Once the Sacramento River, it was like a cascade. The Sacramento River came to the middle where the San Joaquin River farmland was. The San Joaquin River then got sent south to Bakersfield, 160 miles. So to find the flow of the Sac San Joaquin River, you have to travel along Tulare County and Kern County to, Sac to, to all the way to Bakersfield. It's dead. There's a place called Gravelly Ford that for 30 miles the San Joaquin River runs dry. The people didn't complain much back then when this happened. It was a trade-off. We get Sacramento River water. It ends up becoming our water. Sacramento buys flood protection for it. It wasn't until much later that we saw the, the repercussions of this. You know, the, the extraction model going crazy to the nth degree to where it is now. You have very deep could have in the book expressed really sort of mixed feelings about these kind of huge giant historical figures all of whom have these names the wheat king the cotton king the cattle king and my favorite the grand con of the kern um um ollie ben hagen ben ollie hagen yes and on one hand they tr on one hand they trampled over people crushed rivals altered the landscape and the other, there's something about their moxie, their drive, their ambition that is that you have some admiration for. Tell us the story. Maybe you want to start with the Grand Con of the Kern, but tell us the story of one of them and who kind of embodies all the rest and the, those very mixed feelings you know, that you express in the book about them. Can I do a couple, but oh, in please. a short form? Okay. Um, the first taking of California, the first resource, is the taking of the body of the native. It was that taking that allowed for the taking of the first rivers and dams. My editor at Knopf, when he read this manuscript, and it was, it was quite a bit longer, like 30,000, 40,000 words longer, said, can we start with the gold rush? And I said, ah, no, I don't think so. There's a whole pre-settlement California where this extraction model begins, and it's the, the genocide of the native. 
I mean, we had 300,000 native in California, more, a bigger concentration than anywhere in North America. They lived in peace, and they were essentially gone. It happened over decades. So we, we go back to that. Um, the gold rush happens, and we think we all know that story, but it's, it, it, it really is not history. It's still that model, that supercharged kind of extraction continues to this day. And the industrialists who made the most money off of gold before it started polluting the rivers and the alluvial plains, they ended up living on Knob Hill in San Francisco. And they decided that the next gold was wheat. So they planted wheat in the center of the valley, the hinterlands. And the wheat king back then was Isaac Friedlander, uh, an incredible figure, six foot seven. He said he weighed over 300 pounds, that his stride was twice the stride of a normal man's. And he planted, you know, he bought all this land through this government script program. He had upwards of a million acres that he just planted in one crop. And he industrialized the middle of California. So he had clipper ships that delivered this wheat all the way to Liverpool. It was called, I think, White Velvet. It was a prized wheat. And um, at some point, that monoculture of, of a crop ends up robbing so much from the soil that the, the valley soil goes, it has, has some problems. So they decide at that point that we need to transition to specialty crops that, that really take advantage of the special kind of soil and sun and climate and the Sierra snow melt. And that's when you start seeing in the late, 19, late 1800s, early 1900s, the rising of this, um, this kind of specialty agriculture. Fruits, nuts, vegetables, LA becomes, you know, sells the myth of California through the Washington Naval Orange. Um, then after Friedlander, we get Henry Miller. Henry Miller, another San Franciscan who ends up becoming the, the biggest butcher in San Francisco with a guy named Lux. And he decides that he's going to integrate his business in such a way that he's going to then grow the cows in the middle of the state and then bring them to San Francisco to slaughter. And Henry Miller ends up owning a million acres and controlling maybe 10 million acres. And it was said that he couldn't, you know, he could go from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada and never spend a night on land that wasn't his. Now what he did is, unlike Friedlander, he ended up taking control of the rivers because he bought land along the rivers and through riparian rights, he was able to control, you know, he, he, he owned both sides of the San Joaquin River for 70 miles. He owned the Kern River and that's where he came into conflict with Ollie Ben Hagen, who was the third richest man in America had all this land and he had he was just he was taking the water through canals and shipping it to other lands appropriative rights so it was Henry Miller's riparian rights in other words you can draw water because you own land along the river versus Ali Ben Hagen's appropriative rights which is you can take that water and send it shunt it miles away and the California Supreme Court decided in the 1880s 
that they were going to respect both of these things, even though they were in contradiction. And that's this crazy water law that we have today, a combination of riparian and appropriative rights. And it comes from uh, the cattle king and the grand con of the Kern. So if you're drawn to, you know, but you have some admiration for them, but deep criticism of them, you also have great admiration for their critics. And, you know, two of them that, you know, that are really appealing, and what I'd love for you to talk about are Sidney Harding and Joe Pollard. So could you talk about them and tell folks about them? Uh, again, in, in the name of trying to keep the narrative interesting, you have to tell these stories through these people. So I discover that Sidney Harding is a, a University of California at Berkeley professor in the 1920s. And to make a little extra dough, he decides in summer that he's going to go to work for these farmers and the state of California, uh, driving up and down the middle of the state, figuring out what these farmers are actually doing with the water, and is it... Um, righteous enough for the state of California then to build a system to help them, the Central Valley Project, which eventually comes. So Cindy Harding putt-putts in his little uh, bottle tea up and down the valley um, looking at what these farmers have done with the water, and he's alarmed because by that point they've not only used the best land with the river water, they've extracted from the earth the earth is already sinking in the 1920s. And he's saying, listen, if this goes on, we're going to have a disaster. So, you know, if, if the state of California is going to build a system to help agriculture, it must decide what is the best land that water should go to. And so he, he delivers this warning, which is never heeded by the state of California. Only to this day, 160 years after our making, our invention, have we decided that we're going to regulate the taking of groundwater? So that's Sidney Harding, up and down. He's kind of Cassandra. Um, and who, who's the second gentleman? Joe oh, yeah, Joe, Joe Poland. So in chapter, I think it's four, you'll see this famous photograph of this little meek USGS um, scientist who's decided that after 30 years of documenting the sinking of the ground, because we've taken all the water out, and the clay then follows the extraction down and then draws the land with it, he decides that no one is paying attention to this. It's inch by inch and now foot by foot, and the land is sinking. He decides that, and I think he takes it out of a, a Ripley's Believe It or Not comic. That's something I'm probably dating myself. I only remember a little bit of Ripley's day, uh, but it was these wild, crazy, you know, the kid with the, the horn coming out of his head. Um, but he decides he's going he's gonna to turn subsidence, the sinking of the land, into a drama. So he finds a telephone pole on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, and he puts three dates, okay, um, 1950, 19-something, 1977, the current date, and he stands next to it. And he illustrates how far the land has dropped in those 40, 50 years. And it's stunning. So um, he was warning about subsidence back then. And it was, again, another warning that was ignored. Um, today, the aqueduct that runs along from, from, from the delta all the way along the west side, the aqueduct, uh, aqueduct has sunk so much 
that entire stretches of it no longer work. You know, it, it, it is premised on gravity flow. But there are these dead spots that the gravity's been lost. And so what we have to do as a state, and we're all paying for this, is we have to pay extra in electrical charges, a lot extra, to then push that water through these dead spots so it gets down to LA and San Diego. So that was his warning. The, the agricultural baron is still with us. And um, you wrote a really remarkable piece that draws, that eventually in different forms appears in the book, a remarkable piece for California Sunday Magazine. In fact, it was the entire issue um, about um, a family in LA called the Resnicks, who are the biggest agricultural, owners of bigger, more agricultural land than anybody else in the United States, and who just happened to live in Beverly Hills and not <laughs> the Valley. Um, and farm in Lost Hills. Yeah. Uh, and their story brings kind of the history of the Valley right up to the moment, because they represent what the Valley now is. Um, it's, you know, it's Stuart Resnick who introduces almonds at a huge scale. Um, it is his wife who sells pomegranate juice um, until she's told that she's selling it somewhat illegally. Um, well, the claims were illegal. Well, the claims were illegal, not yeah. the selling of it. Yes. Were illegal. Um, but this, that brings the story, you know, into the 21st century. Um, so tell us about the Resnicks and why they so much embody modern-day Valley. So I wrote this this piece, and it was it was twenty-five thousand words, and I told Kit about it, and he said I like to see that piece, so I, I sent it to him. And there was three weeks of silence, and then, and then he said, I think we're going to run this entire piece. We actually cut three or four. Yeah, yeah, words. he did. <laughs> but. But then he asked me to add three or four thousand words, okay, which was brilliant, and it becomes the end of this book. So Kid had a, a major role in shaping this book, in addition to editing that piece and editing the book. And it's pretty extraordinary for a magazine to run, you know, a story that long. This magazine is really special. We're really lucky to have it out west. Um, so. It wasn't until I went back to history that I saw that, you know, that the, the, the Wheat King and the Cattle King and the others, you know, they were farming from afar and so was Stuart Resnick. He was, he was, he was in, um, at the LA Times, I did a story on a water bank that he had come to control. So he farms on the west side of Kern County principally. Now Kern County has two disadvantages. Uh, as in terms of nature. It's very dry, and the, there's no groundwater there. So he can't extract groundwater. So he relies wholly on the flow of the aqueduct as it comes through his land, the state water project. But what happens in drought when the state water project isn't delivering any water? Well, he decides to grow his empire. He needs to somehow create groundwater. So the state of California, in the 80s and 90s built a, the beginnings of a water bank in Kern County. We spent 74 million. What's a water bank? A water bank is a huge stretch of, stretch of land that's porous. So when in flood years, if you throw water on that land, it sucks it right up. But it also has a second thing to it. It's got a membrane deep inside the clay 
that won't allow that water to migrate out. So you actually have a lake of water under this land. And in these secret negotiations in Monterey in the middle 1990s, Resnick is able to capture from the state of California this water bank. And it allows him to grow, you know, millions of almonds and pistachios and pomegranates out there. It's his insurance. But the problem in the drought was not only did the state water project not deliver that water, but the Kern water bank went dry. So I'm driving this land, and it's, it's strange when you drive this land in the valley. I've lived there most of my life, but it's, it couldn't be more wide open, and yet it's secret and hidden, and no one goes out there to explore. And it's a little creepy out there. You know, this is where they dump bodies and often burn them. This is where they cook methamphetamine. And the aqueduct is where they, they dump their cars, hot cars, so no one finds them after a crime. So you're driving through and you're saying, okay, it's the middle of the drought. The current water bank is dry. This guy's hanging a record crop on his almonds, pistachios, and pomegranate trees. How can that be? And that becomes the mystery, because we have to have some mystery that gets you through these sto <laughs> stories. Um, that becomes the mystery that I end up presenting at the beginning of this piece and that teases you through it. How is he doing this? And it's through this, it's through this secret pipeline, in part, and also by spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year buying water from places up north and other places where even in drought they still have some excess water. Remarkable empire. Um, it was called Paramount, but Linda decided that Paramount wasn't quite the right word. It wasn't quite grand enough. So she rebranded it Wonderful. There's a variety of pomegranate called Wonderful. And so she just took that name. And so this is the empire of Wonderful. And um, they're using more water than any couple in the state. They're farming more land um, than anyone in the state. You know, but at the same time, they're giving back to the workers in a way that. Yeah, so I, I wanted to get to that, which go is, ahead. you know, these, you know, the the long history of the valley is an exploitation not just of the land but of people. You know, it is, you know, Armenian migrants. Um, and immigrants coming. It is poor white folks from Oklahoma and Texas. It is black folks from the South, and obviously, you know, it, it is immigrants from Mexico who've been exploited. It has been a history, a hundred years of exploitation. And the Resnicks represents something more complicated, which is, on one hand, a history of exploitation. On the other hand, it's one of the things you talk about in the piece and in the book, which is, she is. They are the one family that is actually spending millions of dollars in philanthropy slash charity. And there's a story you tell, maybe there are two stories that I'd love for you to talk about. One is you're going to a Bruce Springsteen concert and what that says about the Valley. And secondly, you know, this complicated model or maybe not so complicated model of the Resnicks, which is on one hand doing an extraordinary amount of philanthropy, on the other hand, nothing to give up power. Right. Um, but t talk about both those things. Um, I did a story about these um, 
farm workers who, who came up north and weren't making enough in the harvest and they started cooking methamphetamine for these organized, you know, basically crime groups from south of the border. And um, it ran in the LA Times and about two weeks later I got a call from this gentleman. He said, um, I'm Bruce Springsteen's manager and he's read your piece and he writes, wants to write a song about it. And I just started cracking up. I said, who in the hell is this? He said, no, no, this is real. And then he, he took the phone and he put it away and, and he says, can you hear the rooster's cock-a-doodle-dooing? And I said, yes. He says, well, I'm, I'm, on his I'm on his farm in New Jersey. So I said, well, let me get your number. So I got his num number, and then I called uh, Robert Hilburn, who was the, the music critic at the LA Times. And I said, Robert, I got this call from this guy. His name is Terry McGovern. Um, don't go away. That's Bruce Springsteen's guy. That, that, he does everything for Bruce. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> So I call him back and I said, well, what do you need? And he says, well, Bruce has a bunch of questions. And I said, okay. And I miss a day of fax machines. So they're, they're faxing over the questions and then I'm faxing back the answers. It's like, well, what are they cooking with? And I said, well, they're cooking with these ingredients and one is, is hydriotic acid, you know. And, and then where? And the eucalyptus trees and they're blowing up these things. So anyhow, the whole thing's done and then six months later they send me an album and he's got this this song called Sinaloa Cowboys and I, I the man put hydriotic acid in, <laughs> you know in the in the lyrics okay so he comes out to, to California to do because he was living in LA at the time reading the LA Times and he had written read a piece by Hector Tobar what really fine writer who did something on Balboa Park, and he wrote, a, he wrote a song about that as well. So he comes to Fresno to do a concert, and in the middle of the concert, and, and he's just playing by himself, he says, um, you know, this, is, this song is uh, dedicated to the, the men and women of the San Joaquin Valley who pick the fruits and vegetables and nuts, who feed us, and da-da-da-da-da. And you could hear these groans in, at, the, at the Soroyan Theater. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some people get up and leave. And then toward the end of the concert, he says, listen, I've, we, we've got the piggy bank out at, at the exit, and please put money in for, for the farm workers. So um, anyhow, I, I go backstage with my family, and we meet him, and then he's sitting down talking to one of his assistants, and then he's just shaking his head, and he looks over at me, and he says, what is this place? What, what, what's this place? What is this place? I said, what do you mean? He goes, there wasn't a single penny put in that piggy bank. And in the book, I use that as, as a way to riff on this kind of self-hatred that we have, which is we bring these people north to pick our crops, and they endure all these conditions and we, they tend not to exist. They're invisible people to us, except when their kids happen maybe to go to a school that our kids go to. Then all of a sudden we're outraged. How did they land in our school? Um, so there's this great shame that gets sublimated in the valley. And I think it comes, and, and it's, there's a kind of self-hatred that, that's there. It's very complicated. I'm not sure I do it justice in the book, but I come close to trying to at least pose the question. Um, so against that, you have 
the Resnicks. Now, it took them 30 years. They were farming here, but they finally figured out. And it's weird how they figured it out. They went, they were at their vacation home in, um, in Aspen. And they were invited to this lecture that a famous Harvard professor, oh, I forgot his name, um, on, on the obligation of the wealthy. And as they left that night, Linda turned to Stuart and said, well, we're thankfully we're doing enough. And he said, no, we're not. And so in Aspen comes this idea that they need to do more. And so they start doing stuff that no one's ever done, building schools, uh, trying to change, uh, uh, fight diabetes and obesity. Um, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year in charter schools and things helping these communities. Um, you have to give a nod to that. Um, and, and it gets a little creepy, though. Well, I was going to say, not only does it get creepy, but there's a third story you tell, which I think embodies a lot, which is you go to Bakersfield to a restaurant and ask one of the, one of, a, a farmer, why are you voting for Trump when Trump wants to prevent your workers from coming up here? And he tells you this very sort of scary thing. Yeah, it was a lesson in, in real politics. So he knew some of my family members, so he trusted me. I probably betrayed that trust, but you know, what, what are you going to do? It was, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing, inside a gate. Um, he said, I voted for 187, that proposition that was going to deny benefits to illegals. I'm holding a Trump sign. Okay. Um, you know, I will hold the Trump sign. We're doing these things because we know that no matter what roadblock we put in front of the migrant, the migrant will find a way to our fields. So we vote for these things because when they do find their way here, we want them to feel insecure about their position because they can bring us to our knees if they organize. He said, I w we want them to feel a little iffy. And I thought that was fascinating, that this was a calculation, that he could support, they could support Trump, they could support 187, they could support all these things, knowing that in the end, the migrant will find their way here, but we have to undercut them. Now, the, the, the residents, uh, this was the creepy mm -hmm. thing. So you go to their restaurant, um, uh, cafeteria, the really. cafeteria. It's, but it's a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Where all they're all the almonds and pistachios are being um, processed, and you walk in and, and there are no burritos served because Linda says the tortilla is worse than a can of Coke. So she's trying to get them to not eat the the tortilla or the burrito. So there's these wonderful wild salmon with cauliflower. I didn't realize how many things you could do with cauliflower until I went there, and it's selling for two two dollars and fifty cents. Before you eat your lunch, she offers up a little cup, a plastic cup of this little concoction. And I asked, what's in there? And Stuart said, well, that's um, apple cider vinegar, Bragg's, uh, turmeric, ginger, and a, a little bit of mandarin juice, you know, the cuties or the, the halos. And why? Because Linda feels that Everything about us really comes from the gut. And so she wanted to change 
the the biome of the guts of her workers. So, um, you know, it's a little weird. Uh, <laughs> but I guess Kellogg did this. You know, when Kellogg had his, his like, company town, he had these exercise programs and everything else. So, um, anyhow, uh, that's part of the portrait of the Resnicks. Complicated, uh, and it's, it's 50, 60 pages in the middle of the book. I want to change a little bit to a cover story you did for California Sunday, which was about fire and the Paradise Fire and the causes of the Paradise Fire. And when you were writing that piece and when you and I were talking about that piece, there was a real connection between how the state has dealt with water and how the state has managed its forests. And secondly, which is that Paradise, as you make clear in the piece, is a community that should never have been built or never been built at that scale. That what it shares with the valley is a transformation of the land, a deep suspicion, if not outright antipathy toward government in any form of regulation, yeah, yeah, really. and a courting of huge natural disaster. Um, so you know, I'd love to kind of wrap up here with you're talking about you know, paradise and the causes of that fire and Again, there is a, let me add one other element to this, which is, this wasn't a revelation in your piece, because it's been a revelation in the last year, year and a half, if not the last 10 or 15 years, which is we also have a huge government entity, not but different dealing with power in the form of PG&E, who's out, was, you know, who were, who committed any number of crimes, but, you know, were clearly guilty of and have acknowledged their guilt in starting the Paradise Fire. So we have a, two or three parallels with Central Valley, and you draw this in the piece, and the Paradise Fire. So when D Doug, the editor of the, the magazine, the, and, and you came to me and said, would you like to do a piece on Paradise? I'd never been up to Paradise, and, and I wasn't sure, um, but they told me it didn't have to be as long as the Resnick piece. <laughs> I, I wasn't, didn't have to be, it was, <laughs> it shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> It was just it, it just way uh, it was a mere eleven thousand words I think, um, so I drove up there about four months after the fire, and I was stunned to see, not just the devastation but the 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 ambition to grow a place that big, on what was really just a, a ridge between two canyons, a geologic chimney I think is the way we call it in the piece. Um, and it was, it was just crazy. So I found some old planners um, who told me how that happened. And it was, one of them gave me the process. It was called four by fouring. So you have a guy buys a, a, a parcel and he goes to the Board of Soups or the town council when it, it came into existence and says, hey, I want to subdivide this. Okay, subdivide it into four. Then he takes one of the four and sells it to a buddy or a family member, and then that buddy or family member goes before the same board or the same town council and says, I want to divide my piece into four. Okay, fine, divide it. And on and on this kind of slicing and dicing goes. Why the number four? It's not arbitrary. Five would have meant that this was an official subdivision that would have, have had to adhere to state laws. So all these houses get built without sewer, without roads, without defensible space, all it's just crazy. 
So when I went to Kidup with all this, we thought, well, instead of telling the story of, of what happened that disaster, you know, the day of that disaster, let's look at all the ingredients that created that disaster. And there's really three or four. There's one, the way this place grew. Two, the extraction model of California that began up there in the gold rush. Three, the way we mismanaged the forests. And I found this wonderful man way deep in the mountains of Mendocino who had run the California Department of Fire and Forestry before it became the Department of Fire, this kind of uh, industrial complex fighting fire. And he talked, he gave me a lesson in how we had mismanaged the forests, that we had basically taken these trees and treated them as crops. And because the, the natural forest had 62, 63 trees an acre. The forest that we had created, the one that we look at and think is so healthy, has 165 trees an acre. And they're all uniform. If you look at the old forest, and I have photos from the 1840s and 50s, there are major gaps, wide open spaces, uneven canopies. The natural fire would come in and it wouldn't burn crazy, it wouldn't rage because there were all these breaks in it. But by then taking and filling in all those gaps with trees that had a canopy that was even, we created basically matchsticks. That was ingredient two, uh, or three, three. Ingredient four was PG&E. And we went back and we spent a long time documenting the criminal neglect of PG&E and the criminal actually enterprise of PG&E. So, um, it, and the story ends with a kind of a weaving together of that we have taken this watershed up in the mountains, not the watershed down below that I'd written about in, 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 in the Dremplan, but the watershed up, and we had done the same kind of um, remaking of it, destruction of it. Um, so that allowed us to, to extend that story. If I had my way, we would put the Paradise story at the end of this piece, maybe, of, of this book. But, um, yeah, it's, it, and, and it raises this question that it's, com it's not comfortable for all of us, especially those of us who are on the left side of politics, is in the life of the system, you know, the, the grandest water-moving system ever created by man was created by us. The invention of that allowed for the invention of California. But in the lifetime of that system, the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, we've gone from 11 million people to 40 million. The system is cracking. It will not see us into a future of more almonds and more subdivisions across the desert. Something has to give. Meantime, we're talking about building 3 million more homes in California. Okay. Into what safe zones are we going to put those homes? So we're discussing all these things and they're uncomfortable for us to, to discuss because so often that that discussion has been controlled by folks who want to limit immigration and do all sorts of stuff but at some point how many more people can we take on and that's the question i pose at the end of this i don't answer it but i at least pose it why don't we end there and we will open up to questions super fascinating um, all of it, but I just have one particular question. When you're saying that one of these big industrial farmers in the Central Valley buy water from a guy way up north, 
does that mean there does that you can sell water and transport it by canal across the state? There is like a right. So the rice guy, the rice guy up in Sacramento, can who's water rich because the Sacramento River has a lot of flow, and his groundwater is pretty high up. He can take that groundwater or the other water and maybe make a deal with a, a, a pistachio farmer in the middle of California. It's, it's hard with some of the environmental limitations to get that water through the delta, but he can, at a certain window, sell it, and he becomes essentially a, far, a, a partner because his rice isn't making a lot of money. He becomes a partner in this very lucrative nut crop. And, and so... In some ways, that's kind of nice. It's a market that allows farmer to farmer. It doesn't go from farmer to urban, but it's also scary because it's, the water is going to go, you know, not just uphill through drip irrigation. It's going to go to the biggest pockets. So, yeah, that's so. You know, it's again, it's these, this thing that's two-sided. Yes, back there. When you think about California today and the water and the Trump administration and their willingness to basically turn everything over to developers and extractors. Do you, do you see a way through that where that either doesn't happen or it doesn't completely happen or something stops it? Uh, my concern is, you know, the San Joaquin Valley hasn't done a great job of selling its virtues to San Francisco, but it does have virtues. I mean, do we really want to create another San Fernando Valley out of the San Joaquin Valley? Um, so we have this groundwater regulation. I'm not sure the state is going to be able to enforce it the way they did because the farmers are deciding what is sustainable groundwater extraction and what isn't. Will the state call them out and say, no, that's a BS model you have. You're taking too much. We're going to see that in the next five to ten years. If the state holds the farmer to an actual sustainable model, we're going to see 6 million acres of farmland in the San Joaquin Valley alone, not the Sacramento. We're going to see 6 million acres get reduced to probably 4 to 4.5. Will that happen? It should happen because one of the things I do in this book is I show that footprint going out and out and out to, to land that from primo to land that not even a cow should belong on. Speaking of cows, we shouldn't have cows really in California, not mega dairies, because they require alfalfa and nothing sucks up more water than alfalfa. The dairy cow really should go to a place that will make happy cows, Colorado, New Mexico, something like that. Our land is too valuable for that. Um, so where are we headed? I, 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 I don't know. Um, climate change is going to link up with our own inherent volatile climate. We don't need climate change to have climate change in California. We get it. These wild swings. But once that links up to our own changes, we're going to see these things that have never, we've never seen before, havocs we've never seen. Maybe paradise was, the, was an early example of that. Yes? What do you see as the qualities of, of resilience in California? What communities do you see? Is it the migrant communities, the more vulnerable populations, or is it the progressive communities that you see having attributes that will be able to confront the climate crisis? I'd like to believe that California is going to lead the way. I mean, we're leading the way in 
in recognizing the problem and in doing certain things to solve it, but we still haven't taken the step that how much bigger can we grow? We, we, we're not asking that question. Uh, the governor isn't asking that question. I mean, how much bigger can we go, grow? And it, it may be that um, desal plants save us from that. I don't know. Um, they have their own environmental issues. It's expensive water, but maybe we get to that point. Uh, we keep looking for technology to save us. Um, the migrant community is very resilient. Um, the, 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 obviously, the, the enviros in, in, in San Francisco are resilient in pushing things. There's a crop of farmers that are pretty far-seeing. I mean, one of them is, you, you meet him in the first chapter of the book, Brad Gleason. Um, he actually uttered the word climate change. Because I'm out in the land with him, and you know, pistachios require the male to fertilize the female. And this one year of drought, the females were ready. They'd been ready for a month, but the males were nowhere near. And he said, my, I've never seen my orchard this out of sync. And I said, what is it? And he says, climate change. We had not gotten enough chilling hours in winter to fully put the pistachio to sleep. So, um, so we're seeing some concessions there. Is it too late? I don't, I, I don't know. Yes? Where do you think the will to uh, enforce the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act will come from? The governor's office or the legislature? Or uh, where, where does the energy, because it's a great law, great process. It is. And, uh, but it will take, as you say, uh, our state deciding that we really want it to happen because those farmers have a lot of money and they got lawyers and, and they've got well they've got the scientists that are coming up with these models and the question is, and we're gonna and we're gonna depend on the the Department of Water Resources its own people to say no that that model isn't correct uh, you know that's you're extracting way too much can I interrupt for a second yeah for, for most people in this room I'm not sure how many of us know what that law says, why it's so important, why it was a breakthrough, and what its basic tenets were, so that we can have a bit larger understanding of it. And the fact that it doesn't really go into effect for 15 years or so. Yeah, it had a long run-up. So it's, 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 there are these critical basins that are overdrafted, the ones that are sinking, and the farmers there have to, have to decide you know, what is sustainable. I mean, how much of the, uh, how much of the flood years end up you know, um, replenishing that water, and, and, and so you're, you're not extracting it and, and creating um, the subsidence that you are. So it took us 165 years. You know, as, 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 as over-regulated as we think California is, we were the, one of the last states that, to regulate groundwater. So there's a lot of hope. They gave a 20-year time span. Now these, these sub-basins are putting forward their plans to the state. And the state is now going to have to examine these and see if the the water that they want to extract is real, that, that it's sustainable. That's basically it. Yes? I just I wanted to thank you because following your evolution oh. of Sunday Magazine, that's just really... Well, there are actually a number of people here from California Sunday that... It belongs to lots of people. But. It's very impressive. And, uh, 
I've been following Mark's work for a while. And, uh, you guys have done a great job of bringing it forward. Well, thank you. But um, also, in terms of the California situation, we actually do lag behind from a regulatory point of view. We're actually behind Texas and Oklahoma. You're saying we're behind Texas and Oklahoma in, in the way we treat groundwater? Yeah. 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 Um, there's a. Um, a new report of the national, you know, group, the Groundwater Protection Council, has just come out, which I'll, I'll get to you. Okay. But one of the problems in California seems to be the way the judging of the water equity thing is carved up, um, because it's these little fiefdoms. Yeah. And there are five different state agencies, you know, that are involved with this. So. Yeah, DWR is going to be the one to decide it. Um, I think I brought the, the weather of the valley here. Um, it's like, and you guys are really incredible just sitting here going through this. Um, I, I want to take that blower and just like stop it and point it toward me, but that would be. <laughs> One more question? Yeah. Yeah, I had a question about um, probably the editorial function of the stories you're getting, but also that idea of balance in talking about these families and these characters that are in some ways ruining the environment but also doing these sounds like both courageous things but also things that are kind of even the odd thing about the Jews sound like they have kind of interesting ideas about health and wanting to help and I'm just wondering you know how did you find a balance or how did you decide like you know what might have sounded like hedging on them to throw out like sort of the characteristics of these people. Can you use the resting as an example? Yeah, I think that's who you're referring to. Me. Um, you know, cardboard evil is pretty easy to paint. Uh, at some point, I, I just put the reader on my shoulder and say, and, and, and you could see me asking these questions of myself throughout, just trying, it's an interrogation almost of self. You know, what what, what is this? What is it guilt? Well, She's guilt built every library in America, um, you know. You know, so yeah. So, in some ways, it doesn't matter. I even asked Stuart Resnick. He says, "Well, of course it's guilt. I'm Jewish. We have a little guilt." It was more than that. It was an awareness that this is a place of deep need, and what they're doing is putting a lot of pressure on the other farmers. I mean, I was in a in a pistachio conference where Linda got up and started talking about everything they were doing and laying down this challenge to all these growers in the room. There must have been four or five hundred of them. And I looked around and they were all like this. Their heads were down. Um, so whatever the motivation, whatever the uh, cleansing, uh, it's, it, it's, it has to be acknowledged and dealt with and it's part of this complex portrait. It's what makes the reading interesting. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.